please join me in welcoming the incomparable Andrea Mitchell, Chief Foreign Affairs Correspondent for NBC News. Thank you so much. First, I want to apologize. I, Clark was so kind. Um, my colleague, at least Jordan, had a death in the family, and so at the very last moment, I was asked to substitute on Meet the Press this morning, and we tape from 9 to 10 on Nebraska Avenue, <laughs> <laughs> next to another church, a rather large church. So. Um, I'm so sorry to be late and for your indulgence in, um, in hosting me, first of all. It's a great privilege to be here, this historic congregation, um, your you know, wonderful rector who has had such brilliant service here for so many years, has been an inspiration. I've, I've been here before accompanying presidents in press pools and taking notes uh, on the service, but never to be in this storied place. Um, in speaking about reflections on the fourth estate right now, uh, obviously we are at a very troubled time for journalists and indeed I think for the country in terms of the divisions, the partisanship, the last lack of civility in our rhetoric. Uh, the media, we have a certain responsibility for that. I think cable talk following on uh, on talk radio, when I first went to cover Congress full-time after covering the White House for 12 years, in 1989, um, talk radio was fulminating uh, on all sorts of subjects, and uh, political, the political response uh, was really paralyzing rather than energizing. And I think then, of course, the advent of cable television. So we have a big responsibility, and I, I welcome your questions about that. But as I was preparing for today and thinking about all the issues on my beat, North Korea and um, divisions among Democrats and Republicans and foreign policy experts who are nonpartisan about whether it, it is wise to offer a meeting to legitimize the, um, the North Korean leader without having properly prepared. But the counterpoint to that is that this is the president that people elected and people wanted someone who would break through the niceties, if you will, of diplomacy and be impulsive and improvisational. And I think that you know, clearly that was responding to something in the American body politic. That said, all my high-minded thoughts about um, what I could possibly say to this congregation was let's say, superseded by the president's speech last night in Pittsburgh. And this was one of those moments where after a week where he had thrown off the shackles of some of his advisors who were restraining him on trade and other issues and decided on the spur of the moment, it, to the shock of the South Koreans who were briefing the national security and intelligence officials, when the president said, oh, they're here today, because he had scheduled a meeting with them for the, the next day, um, they were being debriefed on what happened in North Korea. And the South Koreans obviously have an agenda of their own, their own national interest. Geography is everything. They have a new president, recently elected president, who ran on a policy of engagement with the North, which contradicts uh, the president, 
our president's own policy. So after 14 months of rhetoric and my nuclear button is larger than yours and all the rest, the president said, well, if they're here now, I want to see them, bring them into the Oval Office. And as uh, Mark Landler, my colleague at the New York Times, uh, first reported, um, he was meeting the South Korean National Security Advisor and Chief of Intelligence, and the National Security Advisor uh, was conveying that Kim Jong-un sent these greetings to him and said, well, fine, I'll meet with him. And the National Security Advisor said, well, I haven't even told my president yet. You know, don't you want to know more about the offer? I mean, none of this had been explained or debriefed. And the fact was that it is a challenge because there was no letter. There was nothing to analyze. So these were all verbal conveyances, and Americans, the American team wanted very much to go back through their own channels, try to reach out to North Koreans, try to reconfirm exactly what was being offered. Does he really mean denuclearization? Um, you know, we, we believe he means a freeze for now of tests, but does, what, what else does he really mean? And instead, the president instantly accepted the offer, and they quickly called President Moon from McMaster's office to see whether he really, you know, wanted to go in, he said, fine. And so without telling the Japanese, the Chinese, uh, the rest of his cabinet, Secretary Tillerson in Ethiopia, was quickly informed, um, this was on. And so this is the prize being given at the beginning of a negotiation. So all of that is, is being debated and now whether it happens or not, and I believe it will happen because I think from what the president has said and has been tweeting, he's very invested in this. Um, now it's for the rest of us to figure out who is going to negotiate this. We, our State Department has been decimated, truly. Um, Joe Yon, the top uh, expert on North and South Korea, quit in frustration, according to my sources, over not being invited even by Tillerson to White House meetings. And the policy is being so centralized in the White House, which is not unusual in past administrations, Democratic and Republican, where secretaries of state found that they were being marginalized. But what's different now is that the president is really his own. I mean, he has said this, and he's absolutely right. He is making decisions on the fly without necessarily listening to most anyone except General Mattis is the only person who seems to have figured out how to navigate this without being diminished and um, ridiculed in public on Twitter or from the podium. All that said, the president unleashed in Pittsburgh last night campaigning nominally for the Republican candidate in a special election in a district that went 20% for Donald Trump in the general election, um, just unloaded on a whole lot of people. Example, I just was on the set of Meet the Press with Peggy Noonan who said off camera um, that she had had dinner early because she was doing Meet the Press and there's the time difference and all of you were to be congratulated for being up so early. And um, she got into bed and turned on the speech to watch it and heard her name. And she sort of sat up in bed and said, but I'm Peggy Noonan. And <laughs> it was the president attacking Peggy Noonan. He also said that Ronald Reagan was bad on trade. Um, which is interesting, coming from a Republican president. But he also, of course, uh, went after Chuck Todd. And 
So then we are faced with, how do you deal with that? And Chuck was not really going to mention it, but what he did do, and you'll see if you look at it, at, at the program later on tape, um, Chuck was questioning the one person that the White House said could represent the administration today, and that was Secretary Mnuchin. And he asked Secretary Mnuchin about that rally and all of the insults. Um, when this was a classic campaign-style rally, and some of it with the president um, uh, mocking what it is to be presidential is rather amusing. I mean, it was very entertaining. There's no question about that. And Mnuchin said, what Chuck's question was not about himself. He didn't bring up his own the insult of Chuck Todd as sleepy, a sleepyhead, a sleepy-eyed. Excuse me, can I say this in church? A sleepy-eyed son of a bitch. Uh, from the podium, two thousand people there about Chuck Todd, and so Chuck didn't ask him about that, but he asked him about some of the other insults, Mnuchin. And Mnuchin said, "Well, some of it, you know." He said, "Well, that's a rally," and. Chuck said, we're not supposed to believe what he says in a rally, or when that's not a, you know, something that we should pay attention to. And Mnuchin said, well, some of it was funny. And Chuck said, yeah, hilarious, rather dryly. <laughs> <laughs> but what Chuck was saying was, what does this mean, you have children, what does this mean, Mr. Secretary, for your children? What about the role model of the President of the United States? And that's, I guess, the core of this issue for those of us as journalists. Um, I have always been tried to be and do my best to be down the middle. But I do think that when the President of the United States misstates the facts of the trade deficit, not just the numbers, but what the, the basic fact of our trading relationship with Mexico or Canada, I think I have to explain that as a journalist. And so that's not the same as the way I was raised, which is to say, the president said this today. It's, it requires context and clarification if people are lying from the podium of the, of the White House press briefing room. You have to call that out. And that's putting us in a very different role. It's not a comfortable role, to be frank. And that's what happened with Chuck today. We were all talking about this, because just the other night I was introducing Chuck at the Radio Television Digital News Association, where he was getting the First Amendment Award. And he gave a very good acceptance speech about the importance of the First Amendment and a free press. And part of that is that facts matter, and that it is our job to, be, to work hard enough and to be smart enough to figure out what is true and what is not true. And that does put us uh, kind of in, in the target of the president and his rhetoric. It also is not the way many of us were brought up. You know, who, what, when, where, and why. Uh, the sort of wire service, the old-fashioned wire service reportage from the White House. I covered Reagan for two terms. I covered a little bit of Jimmy Carter as a, um, a backup to my good friend, Judy Woodruff, who was then our correspondent. And um, I was covering energy at the time, and then eight years of Reagan, and then four years at covering Capitol Hill, which was very contentious. Um, it was when, I mean, my first assignment was the 
uh, confirmation hearing of the nominee to be Secretary of the of, of uh, Secretary of Defense, and uh, that didn't quite work out. And uh, you know, there was all sorts of testimony. Uh, this was the George W. Excuse me, the George Herbert Walker Bush administration, and so it was a very difficult confirmation hearing, putting Sam Nunn uh, against the President of the United States over that nomination. And then we had the savings and loan crisis. We had the Clarence Thomas hearings. I mean, this has been a very uh, difficult time for journalists for decades now. But I, it is fair to say that, um, the, of course, the impeachment of Bill Clinton and all of that. I was covering Clinton, covered the Clinton campaign. And then 9-11 and all that that carried with it in terms of our responsibility for not doing a good job about covering the intelligence and the WMD, and we have a lot to answer for that. So the record of journalism has not been uh, unblemished, to say the least. But now we are facing a, a more existential challenge, I think, for our profession, and also in some ways for our country in terms of the kind of rhetoric that is being exchanged, the difficulty in assessing what is um, really happening in a campaign. Not only can you believe polls, and should we not be relying on that, but should we be covering campaign rallies live on the air because they're entertaining and maybe they're good for ratings, and not doing the kinds of pieces that I was raised to do, which is, let's do a full piece on the housing issue, and let's talk about education. And the policy questions were not written about and discussed certainly on television and um, in, even in, in print as much as in past campaigns because you had this large size personality and these extraordinary um, rallies. And I think that that, I was covering Hillary Clinton so I was not covering the, the Trump campaign on the road, but I think that that has been, um, that has raised real questions about the balance in that campaign. We covered Clinton, but my concern was that most of the stories about Clinton had to do with the email issue, which is a legitimate issue, but not about a speech she would give on opioids very early in, in 2015, because she heard it in New Hampshire from the people she was talking to at small town hall meetings. This is not to excuse one of the worst run campaigns in recent American history, uh, bad strategy, bad retail politics, and the assumption that he was so unelectable and unacceptable that he didn't have to be taken as seriously as he should have been t taken. That brings me to Russia and the fact that we are only now unraveling the role that Russia played. Um, today I read that the Times of London is reporting that Theresa May is under pressure to return secret contributions from Russian oligarchs. Russian oligarchs mean to her, to the Conservative Party. That's, that's the Putin, that's the Kremlin government. There's no such thing in Russia as a disconnected oligarch from Putin control. We know what happened in France and how uh, smartly Macron pushed back against it, but now the Russians are interfering in the Mexican election, which is July 1st. So this does need to be investigated and journalists are really not equipped to do the kind of cyber research. We try, but uh, 
Um, this is a whole new level of intelligence gathering that is incredibly uh, challenging for us. So there is that in terms of knowing what we are actually, whom we're interviewing and what is real. And I remember just, uh, and I know I want to leave time for questions. I was with my friend Dan Balls from the Washington Post doing the after action report that Harvard University always has after a campaign. And it was in our case at the end of a two day session, three hours of intensive examination with all the teams from both campaigns lined up against each other only three weeks after the election, which was probably too soon for the battered, emotionally battered Clinton team, frankly, they were still in shock. There was no question about that. And unlike past victors, the Trump campaign officials were triumphalist. They were, they were so, um, they were gloating. And it was a mismatch emotionally. And so, Dan and I had prepared as though we were preparing for a debate. On such and such a day, uh, you people in the Trump campaign were saying this. Uh, you people in the Clinton campaign were saying this. It was the last 100 days, the general election after the conventions. And we were really trying to create a record. A book was to be published from this. There were no cameras, and people were supposed to feel you know, completely uh, uh, at ease about talking. But instead, it became a fierce, um, emotional argument between Kellyanne Conway and Jen Palmieri, um, very emotional and draining. And finally, Dan and I, you know, uh, virtually threw up our notes and let them let people just go at each other because nobody wanted to observe any kind of um, guideline as to how we were going to format this. And at the very end, Mandy Grunewald from the Clinton team said very quietly to Brad. Pascal, from, uh, Pascal from the head of digital, who has now been named the campaign manager for a, uh, a 2020 re-election campaign, said to him across the table, you gaslighted her. You hit her in ways that we couldn't combat. And he had been explaining, we don't, you know, you all were reporting about the lack of storefronts and we didn't really have a good campaign infrastructure and we were doing everything online and telling volunteers where to go and you, and he said very smugly, and you never saw it coming. And that is exactly where the mismatch was. But what we didn't know then is how much of this was really from Russian bots and um, we don't know if there is a connection. That is what Robert Mueller is trying to investigate. But we did not know how to cover that campaign in, in terms of Facebook and all the other social media platforms. And they say neither did they. So this is a whole new, very challenging world for the fourth estate. And my concern is that um, at my age, I don't expect to really be as competitive as I'd like to be in this world, but even the young, even the millennial uh, correspondents are having trouble keeping up with all of the platforms and with how to diagnose what is happening on social media. And um, if we didn't do it in 2016, how are we going to do it in 2020? So. 
my own thought is that we just need to put as much facts out there and try to be above the fray and just try not to become the center of attention as, believe me, Chuck did not want to be last night on the eve of a show where he was preparing and getting ready to, to do an, an important hours long broadcast today. And it's going to be combative. We have to be prepared for that. You know, that's, that's why we're paid well and, and we have these jobs of huge responsibility. But to try to get to the truth, to try to report more intelligently about the economic side of these debates, try to bring people stories about the winners and losers in NAFTA. I've interviewed last week potato growers from Wisconsin who were very concerned. They were coming here to lobby about uh, not doing away with NAFTA because they have been advantaged by it, whereas tomato farmers in Florida have been disadvantaged. And a woman I interviewed in Texas who is a rancher and is raising beef that she exports to Mexico loves NAFTA. And in any trade relationship, there are winners and losers. And what you never hear from the White House is the services surplus because we're no longer as much as a developed country, we're no longer where China is. We're not a steel and coal country. We are a services and intellectual property country. And so, the, you know, he talks about the $800 billion trade deficit. He doesn't talk about the $500 billion surplus in services. And so there's a net effect. And if you have Americans buying things from overseas, um, and people selling to us. We're also exporting things to markets that are now going to retaliate against us. Um, you had Canada's foreign minister last week in Mexico saying, we have been your strongest allies in NATO and NORAD. How can you say that there is a national security imperative for these steel tariffs? Because he's using, the White House is using a very narrow national security argument for the tariffs, which has not been used before. That, and you can argue that almost any commodity, steel, aluminum, is of national security importance because it's used in airplanes or in some other product. But that undermines the global trade mechanisms that have been in place since Bretton Woods. And there is no question that in 25 years, NAFTA could be renegotiated to reflect the way you know, our economy has changed and the way the world has changed. What is not being taken into account, according to the Mexican officials I talked to, is how profoundly Mexican politics have changed in the 20 years of our engagement through NAFTA. And in talking to some of the people who negotiated NAFTA in the first place, and I remember standing in the East Room and watching all the living former presidents standing alongside, flanking Bill Clinton, because it was bipartisan. And the whole reason for, one of the reasons for NAFTA was to build the Mexican economy so that they would have, um, first of all, less migration, and now there is net migration from Mexico. The migration coming in across our border is from other Central American countries through Mexico. And to build 
less a, a, a country, a neighbor that was not as anti-American and would have a more stable politics, which is what has exactly transpired. But in their election July 1st, if the politics are as toxic as they are right now, where Pena Nieto canceled a trip because the president insulted him on the telephone about the wall, um, they could have a very different kind of election. And then there's an election also in Colombia in May, and the president is going to Colombia in April, his first trip to Latin America. So there are a lot of things in play here that need to be considered as someone who covers foreign policy and someone I would defer to Clark Irvin on all of this because he knows far more than I do. It's just a, a much more complicated world. And just one final word, and I'd love to take your questions. The diminishing and marginalizing of the State Department. The numbers don't even reflect the loss of veteran diplomats. Most recently, Joe Yun on, on um, North Korea and Roberta Jacobson, our ambassador, 31 years, our ambassador in Mexico, was told she could not accompany Jared Kushner to the meeting with the Mexican president. She had resigned two days earlier, seeing the handwriting on the wall. She is a superb diplomat. We are losing um, the best and the brightest. And Madeleine Albright tells me that her students at Georgetown are not taking the foreign service exam. There is a huge downturn in people in college, these young people not wanting to go into diplomacy. And this is, these are not things that can be easily overcome. So I just worry about um, the respect of our diplomats. Uh, the understanding of what they face, some of the dangers they face, the sacrifices of their families, um, in, in terms of the rhetoric coming from the White House. Um, and I'm, I'm sorry to be a bit gloomy. It's been a rough 24 hours, I have to tell you, for the fourth estate. But the one good thing is, I think that the, the, the media, that the Times, the Post, the Boston Globe, you name it, there has been some brilliant reporting in the last 14, 15 months. Um, there will be mistakes, and there have been, but they have been few. Um, we have established a whole uh, expanded system of standards, fact-checking, multiple sourcing, because we know how, how fraught this is if we, make a, uh, if we make a mistake and if it involves the president. So we have lawyers checking every exclusive story. Any anonymous story has to have at least two sources. The sources now have to be identified to a senior vice president of NBC News, and there has to be sign-off. And we've lost some scoops by you know, other people when these stories are being talked about, getting, getting out first. But that has just become our new mantra. And we've hired a lot of people. We've hired reporters from the Post and from um, the Wall Street Journal and other print organizations and to bolster our own reporting. So we're all trying to meet the challenge here. I think the judiciary has been remarkable, um, less so the backbone of people in Congress. So, but our, our country is resilient. Um, the next generation is so much smarter than mine and, and has so many more tools that I have to believe that uh, the future of journalism is bright and that we're just going through a very difficult pass um, in our politics. Hello, thank you for coming today. 
And I was wondering how you would respond to many people out there who believe that the outside's coverage that the cable news networks gave to Trump was partially responsible for him being in office today, and also why the news continues to be almost exclusively about Trump and we don't hear about international issues or other issues? I agree with your critique. We're, we're, some of us are fighting hard for more balance, and I think it's a problem. I agree. Can you explain, if everybody's so upset about NAFTA, why um, the Senate won't do the, whatever, 60-senator rule to overrule uh, the decision? Or I should say the steel and aluminum tariffs. Can't Senate override that? Um, why that did uh, the Senate move to a 60 rule? No, no sorry. Um, it was my understanding with the steel and aluminum tariffs that if there are 60 senators, that they can pass legislation to not have, to not let that take effect? Is that true? And if well, the, so? There are some, Jeff Flake said today that he's putting in legislation, but it's not clear at all that Mitch McConnell will let it get to the floor to actually try to override this. By taking, by using the national security exemption or the, the national security provision of this 232 provision, um, the president does have more authority, and Congress is going to have to take, pass legislation. The concern that people who oppose these tariffs have is that this Congress has been almost incapable of doing anything legislatively, um, with 60 votes or not. I mean, the only, the, the major achievement has been, for the White House has been the tax bill, but almost nothing else has gone through, and they have not even put, a, put up a gun bill, which the Florida legislature did improbably uh, and is now being sued by the NRA. So for Congress to take action here when so many Democrats from red states are, like Missouri, Claire McCaskill's in a very tough race. How are people, I don't know how she would vote on this, uh, Manchin in West Virginia, how they might well vote with Republicans to support the president. So there are no clear dividing lines. This would be a tough vote to win, to overturn the president on this. I would appreciate your assessment of the state of the Democratic Party. Uh, we interviewed Elizabeth Warren as well, Chuck did this morning today, and it's very clear that um, she said she's, she is not a candidate. She's running for re-election to the Senate, but there was no Sherman-like uh, stance. I think that the concern that some Democrats might have is that you are going to have what the Republicans experienced in 2016, 17 candidates on a stage, and then the one who is the most entertaining, who is Donald J. Trump, eventually might win an election if the party is that divided. The, the Democratic Party is gonna be divided on economic issues, on social issues, guns. Um, the Democratic Party is gonna have a hard time coming together behind uh, one or two or three or four good candidates. And this, if there is a huge uh, array of candidates on the Democratic side, someone who is the most entertaining among them might en end up coming to the top. So I think the, Dem the Democrats are not in good shape. Can Everyone, I just say one more word? Yes, by all means. I just wanna say, I've had so many mentors and so many people helping me along the way, Tom Brokaw, importantly, but there's someone in your congregation whom I see, Gordon Peterson, I would not be where I am today if he had not
taught me so much at Channel 9. And I just want to say thank you, Gordon. Um, I was a local reporter. And so we all follow in the path of others. Thank you.